There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. In their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on the beds, and the windows were always open. Eustace Clarence liked animals, especially beetles. If they were dead and pinned on a card, he liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools. Eustace Clarence disliked his cousins, the four Pevensies, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. But he was quite glad when he heard that Edmund and Lucy were coming to stay. For deep down inside him, he liked boxing and bullying. And though he was a puny little person who couldn't have stood up even to Lucy, let alone Edmund, in a fight, he knew that there are dozens of ways to give people a bad time if you are in your own home and they are only visitors. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Hello and welcome back at long last to the Inklings Variety Hour where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, pinner of literary texts to cards. And to kick off season three, I am joined by two very special guest stars, Eric Geddes, collector and bibliophile. How are you doing, Eric? Oh, I'm good. Thanks for having me back. It's so good to have you. And some of you may remember Eric from our Christmas episode. And from the podcast Pints with Jack, we have an Englishman nerd by his own admission and connoisseur of human folly, Mr. David Bates. Great to have you on the show. It's wonderful to finally make it over to the Variety Hour. I'm so happy to be starting season three on a high note with David joining us this episode whose podcast Pints with Jack. You probably already know about if you listen to this podcast. If you don't, please finish listening to this episode first and then immediately check out his stuff. <laughs> I should say that whether you're a fan or a scholar, listener, I'm always looking for guests. So please do write in if you'd like to join us for an episode or three. You'll at minimum get a good conversation out of it with other people who love the Inklings work. This season, as I'm sure you've gathered, we'll be launching into the deep with The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I have several interviews with authors and scholars lined up after that. We'll also be making our way through the wacky world of Tolkien fandom, both American and former Soviet, exploring the poetry of Lewis's friend Ruth Pitter, and then making our way through Out of the Silent Planet the first book in Lewis's Space Trilogy, which we'll try really hard to get through in a mere three episodes. And it looks like as it happens, Pints with Jack is also planning to explore Out of the Silent Planet for their season five, which just goes to show you that even though time may work differently in our two worlds, our planets do occasionally align anyway. And after Out of the Silent Planet, the adventure really begins, which is to say I haven't planned it yet. Anyway, stay tuned. Write to us at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com and please do rate us and tell your friends.
So published in 1952 and dedicated to Owen Barfield's son, Jeffrey, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the third book in Lewis's Narnia series. This is the first tale in which only two of the Pevensies, Edmund and Lucy, play a part, as Peter and Susan have become too old to visit Narnia. It's also the first tale in which a non-Pevensie comes into Narnia from the outside world, Edmund and Lucy's awful cousin, Eustace. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a departure from the other books for a number of other reasons. Far less time has passed in Narnia than in previous books. There's no single antagonist, unless you count Eustace, but instead internal and external obstacles that threaten to prevent Caspian from completing his mission, which is to recover the seven lords of Narnia who had been loyal to his father and who had not been seen since they sailed east long ago. The book owes something to contemporary sea adventure stories, as well as to older stories of voyaging and travel, such as the Odyssey, Jason and the Argonauts, the travels of John of Mandeville, and many others. A number of critics have also remarked that it bears a resemblance to Irish Imrama, which is the plural of Imram, and these are tales in which saints or Irish mythological heroes find the other world by sailing west. Though importantly, and true to its name, the Dawn Treader sails east toward the sun. Is there anything that you all would like to add that I think is important to note before we move forward to talking about this opening passage? Two things. The first would be that if people are following along the Chronicles of Narnia with Dr. Ward's Planet Narnia hypothesis, this is the sun book. Uh, so expect lots of suns and lots of dragons. And I would also add... Actually, I'm going to say three things. It also always reminded me of Star Trek because it's very episodic. Just puts me in mind of people in red shirts getting turned into dragons. Yes. And since you're also going to be talking about Out of the, out of the Silent Planet, I'd also say that you can see some echoes of that story in here insofar as it is all about a journey to far-flung, interesting places and a mental and spiritual journey that happens along the way as well as discovering that uh, if you're the one going about doing the traveling, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're the good guy. Yeah, right on. Eric, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, there's one thing I absolutely love about this book. It is my favorite out of all of them. I think. It's but, pretty high uh, up there for me too. Yeah, but I think one of the things that sets it apart for me is there, there is no clear antagonist. There is no dark lord or white witch or anything. And I think that just makes it so unique out of children's stories that I've read. And I also love how as they keep getting closer and closer to Aslan's country, it gets more and more spiritual and surreal and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like that. I like that point. I think that might be just a feature of the genre as well of this sort of, uh, as David was saying, episodic sort of structure. If a story is episodic in this way, where like an adventure happens in one part and then you go to a new place and a new adventure happens and another place, and another adventure happens. A lot of times the joy of reading it isn't seeing how some great big bad evil person or thing is defeated right but rather seeing or, or where we go mist. next yeah or, or green mist <laughs> exactly but rather seeing what happens next right and each little place has some kind of antagonist that you have to beat whether it's you know, something in yourself or something outside of yourself. It's really brilliant. I usually, with the Narnia stories, I usually ask the different hosts and guests when the first time was that they remembered reading this and what the reaction was. Honestly, for me, at this point, it's kind of a blur and I, I can't really separate out when I read one Narnia story versus another. But do you all have any memories associated with Voyage of the Dawn Treader specifically? Well, I was born and raised on them. And just before we started, I showed you a picture of little David playing with his plastic toy lion Aslan. So I've been exposed to Narnia for as long as I can remember, but this is certainly the book which stands out in my memory 
as I was hearing it, sitting appropriately enough in the bath as my mother was reading me a, a chapter to keep me in contact with the soap and water for as long as she possibly could. And this was easily my favorite as a kid, just because of it was high adventure and ships and sword fights. You know, what wasn't to love? Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's part of the reason that I like it so much. And we're going to talk a little bit as well about how this is the point at which Lewis sort of figures out what Narnia is about. You know, as good as The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe and Prince Caspian are, it doesn't feel like it's quite congealed yet. Like everything's still growing, like in The Magician's Nephew, you know? I feel like the world kind of sets in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in a way that it hadn't yet, where, where Lewis was like, okay, is this a land of talking beasts or is it like... Uh, land of human invaders that have come in from our world or you know how exactly do these things come together but it seems to be much more have like a particular culture right and a particular um, flavor by the time you get to the voyage of the dawn treader which is interesting because of course like none of the voyage of the dawn treader actually takes place in narnia proper it takes place in the world in which narnia the country exists but not in narnia the country itself um, unless you count the lone islands i guess uh, since technically they belong to they're, they're reclaimed right right but yeah it's it's interesting book i think it misses being my favorite because of the silver chair i think the silver chair may be higher up there for me but i'm not sure So let's talk about that opening passage. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I think this is probably one of the best first lines in literature. It's it's brilliant. I could see Lewis just kind of like sitting down and writing it and having nothing to do with Narnia and then tying it into Narnia because it's it's, it's just fantastic. So he describes- It strikes me yeah. as very autobiographical because mm -hmm. you could- very easily begin this story, particularly when you start learning more about Lewis's life. There once was a boy named Clive Staples Lewis. And he nearly deserved it. Yeah, you know? yeah. There are certain aspects of, of Eustace's personality that remind me of what he describes in Surprised by Joy, you know, things He's about- He's a prick. He's a snob. Yeah, yeah. Just unnecessarily uh, mean. Yeah, and maybe it's an idea of what he would have been like if he'd been raised by these new progressive schools, Harold and Alberta in Cambridge of all places. I think the one place where it's not like Lewis, well, there are a few places, but I think one definitely is, is that Eustace seems to like Beatles and Lewis is terrified of Beatles. But yeah, so so Lewis in, the, in this passage describes a, a bunch of different things, characterize Harold and Alberta's life. They include strange underwear, teetotalism, leaving windows open, calling parents by their first names. And this, you know, to me, uh, Lewis throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, because they feature children, is thinking a lot and talking a lot about education. So why are these things all a mark of Eustace's miseducation or lack of education or, or yeah, false education? Well, throughout Maybe. the Chronicles of Narnia, People that don't smoke are always treated with a little bit of suspicion. So yeah. that's just that's just a mark of degeneracy in general. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what Lewis is referring to here are Shavians, fans of George Bernard Shaw, vegetarian, non-smoking, teetotaler. The whole thing about uh, underwear. Shaw, he was an advocate for a hygienic 
woolen underwear that was espoused by a German doctor named Gustav Jaeger. And he claimed that all other fabrics when used for underwear were injurious to your health. So pretty much Shaw is the anti-Lewis. Shaw is Mm -hmm. a good friend actually with G.K. Chesterton, but the men could not have been more different. And so I think uh, for many of the inklings, Shaw just, he becomes the epitome of everything that's wrong with the modern world, (laughs) getting all these terrible, terrible ideas. Yeah, and I think a lot of the um, health-conscious stuff, it's hard for, particularly at that point, it seems to be hard to separate out what's what's fad from what's actual science. A lot of the concern with bacteria and with germs and things like that, like you see that also come in for satirical thrust in that hideous strength, right, where the, where the men from NICE are, are trying to get rid of anything that's organic at all right because it, it, it so cuts against their aesthetic and their and their sensibility there's something inhuman uh, about this sort of progress to to lewis especially i think both lewis and his brother warney would pour out their ashes from their pipes onto the carpet and tread it in because they thought it kept away bugs um, yeah these yeah. these these were bachelors and cleanliness does not seem to be particularly high up on their list of priorities well when you're dirtier than the germs uh the germs <laughs> have to go away it's, it's, uh... It's the way it's always been done. I've also heard horror stories about that and things that Joy, for example, had to deal with when when she moved into the kilns. Pretty uh, pretty funny. Speaking of funny, this is the funniest Narnia book, uh, at least at the beginning, right? It's It seems to me to be where Lewis really hits his stride, finds his muse. Lewis has something to kind of satirize from the beginning. And I think having the kind of energy, wanting to make jokes at the expense of one's ideological opponents uh, really does serve him well. As he kind of turns the satire increasingly to into an adventure tale. Do you all have thoughts about that? It's certainly the one of the more funnier of his books, uh, and it's helped in no small way by both an antagonist, because Eustace is a bit of an antagonist, at least to begin with, who is incredibly annoying. And then you've got somebody also like Reaper Cheap on board, and you, you know that these two are going to butt heads very quickly. I also think it's quite funny when they fall into the sea and they get fished out, and Eustace is like, nah, I want to go home! Just his reaction to everything is, wah! And you just want to see Shut up! Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you were saying, David, it was the poor opposite of Reaper Cheap and everybody else on there because they know what they're getting into, whereas he has no idea. There's also such a um, combination of humanism and then just really kind of an older tradition, even that humanism, you know, reacts against in the thinking of the Narnians that Eustace and Harold and Alberta and Cambridge and every, you know, that, that entire sort of progressive world and Shaw are very much setting themselves against. And Lewis is, is seeing more in common between traditional human cultures than, than between those cultures and the, the kind of new modern progressives. There's a really funny kind of, it's almost like a discordant note ending Prince Caspian and picking up with this book, because really the ending of Prince Caspian and the beginning of this book really couldn't be more different. You've got this ongoing party with Aslan and uh, Bacchus and Selenus and lots and lots of wine and grapes and, and things like that. And school being, you know, a kind of almost modern school um, that the Telmarines are having, being disrupted by Aslan and bridges being broken and great, great party. And then the kids go home and then the next book begins with Eustace Clarence Scrub and this like really antiseptic, very safe upbringing and education uh, that he 
he's had thanks to his progressive parents who are teetotalers and therefore probably a little bit Bacchus averse. But at the same time, both works in, in dealing with education have a lot in common, especially when they're talking about what education should not be. Lewis wrote The Abolition of Man about a decade earlier, where he expresses concern that eliminating tradition from education will mean not inculcating the sort of emotional responses that make people human. He argues there that this will result in a generation of men without chests um, who are cynics and cowards and cut off from most great traditions that are designed to make people not cynical and not cowardly. Eustace seems to be an example of the sort of little jerk that this sort of progressive education would produce. And as you were saying, David, I think possibly even an autobiographical, semi-autobiographical picture of the way that he could have ended up, if not for, I guess, the great knock and, and you know, his his love of poetry. And I remember having this old bearded professor, Dr. Baranek, who's, you know, gone on to be with the Lord. He knew everything. He knew more than any of the other professors in, in my graduate school. And he sometimes fell asleep during his own lectures. <laughs> uh, but I remember he said once that he thought we could do a lot worse education wise than sending a kid to sea as a ship's boy when he turned 11 or 12 rather than high school. And I imagine that Lewis would have agreed. I'd kind of like to trace how these early chapters of Voyage of the Dawn Treader are a satire on education as well as a kind of argument for what a good education should involve. Obviously, it's about a lot more than that, of course, but it's an idea I'd like to keep in mind. Let's talk about the first four chapters of this book. The... Youngest two Pavenses, Edmund and Lucy, have been staying with their awful uncle and aunt and their awful cousin. They try to get away whenever they can from Eustace, who's very, very annoying. Talk, of course, about Narnia. And Eustace, of course, being Eustace, likes to listen in and make fun of them and make up limericks like some kids who played games about Narnia got gradually bombier and bombier, demonstrate that he knows what an assonant rhyme is. And they notice this picture that their aunt and uncle don't like, but they can't give it away. And it's a picture of a ship that looks just like a Narnian ship. It's a rotten picture, said Eustace. You won't see it if you step outside, said Edmund. Why do you like it, said Eustace to Lucy. Well, for one thing, said Lucy, I like it because the ship looks as if it were really moving and the water looks as if it were really wet, and the waves look as if they were really going up and down. Of course, Eustace knew lots of answers to this, but he didn't say anything. The reason was that at that very moment, he looked at the waves and saw that they did look very much indeed, as if they were going up and down. He'd only once been in a ship, and then only as far as the Isle of Wight, and had been horribly seasick. The look of the waves in the picture made him feel sick again. He turned rather green and tried another look, and then all three children were staring with open mouths. What they were seeing may be hard to believe when you read it in print, but it was almost as hard to believe when you saw it happening. The things in the picture were moving. It didn't look at all like a cinema either. The colors were too real and clean and out of doors for that. Down went the prow of the ship into the wave and up went a great shock of spray. And then up went the wave behind her and her stern and her deck became visible for the first time and then disappeared as the next wave came to meet her and her bows went up again. At the same moment, an exercise book, which had been lying beside Edmund on the bed, flapped, rose, and sailed through the air to the wall behind him, and Lucy felt all her hair whipping round her face as it does on a windy day. And this was a windy day, but the wind was blowing out of the picture towards them. And suddenly, with the wind, came the noises, the swishing of waves and the slap of water against the ship's sides, and the creaking and the overall high, steady roar of air and water. But it was the smell, the wild, briny smell which really convinced Lucy that she was not dreaming. Stop 
stop it! King Eustace's voice, squeaky with fright and bad temper. It's some silly trick you two are playing. Stop it! I'll tell Alberta. Ow! The other two were much more accustomed to adventures, but just exactly as Eustace Clarence has said ow, they both said ow too. The reason was that a great cold salt splash had broken right out of the frame. And they were breathless from the smack of it, besides being wet through. I'll smash the rotten thing, cried Eustace, and then several things happened at the same time. Eustace rushed toward the picture. Edmund, who knew something about magic, sprang after him, warning him to look out and not be a fool. Lucy grabbed at him from the other side and was dragged forward. And by this time, either they had grown much smaller, or the picture had grown bigger. Eustace jumped to try to pull it off the wall and found himself standing on the frame. In front of him was not glass, but real sea and wind and waves rushing up to the frame as they might to a rock. He lost his head and clutched at the other two, who had jumped up beside him. There was a second of struggling and shouting, and just as they thought they had got their balance, a great blue roller surged up around them, swept them off their feet, and drew them down into the sea. Eustace's despairing cry suddenly ended as the water got into his mouth. So, so far we've seen a wardrobe provide a way into Narnia, and then in Prince Caspian, it seems like nothing really brings them into Narnia, but we find out it's Queen Susan's horn, which is blown from Narnia, and this time it's a picture. Why do you all think Lewis chooses a picture to draw them in this time? He's kind of drawing on the fact that words can be very evocative, but pictures can be just as, if not more, evocative. You just feel, looking at some of them, that you're like, yeah, I can I can imagine myself on this. What if he's just having fun with that? And he's like, well, what if we actually did go through here? Yeah, I like that idea. I like the idea that Lewis was at some point at a dinner party or wandering around Oxford or Cambridge and saw a beautiful picture and was thinking to himself, man, that looks really lifelike. It's almost like you could step into that other world. And then he remembered that he had already built Narnia and that this might be a, a great entry at, in one of his next books. Honestly, this is my favorite entry into Narnia out of the entire Narnia ad. Yeah, I think it might be mine as well. There's something about, this is getting into a whole complex of other topics having to do with Lewis, Joy, and Joy the concept, not, not the person. But there's something about the sea, and there's something about sailing on the sea that is so evocative for Lewis and, and I think even more Tolkien. But yeah, there's something so kind of painfully joyful, you know, something that calls to you when you see paintings of the sea or paintings of ships at sea. It moves your desire. It makes you want to be there. Um, at least at least that's the effect it often has on me. And Lewis yeah. would have experienced it very vividly every time he was returning home for the holidays from schooling in England. The sea was a, a gateway back to the land that he loved because he wasn't great fan of England. And not only that, he was putting all of that horrible school and his schoolmates behind him and heading home to somewhere better. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. That sort of motif of, you know, ending school and going on a holiday uh, pops up again and again and again throughout the Narniad. It happens when there's an unexpected holiday in Prince Caspian, when the holidays are ending and and, uh, and suddenly they find themselves on another holiday. And then this one too, you know, holiday that was going to be spoiled, suddenly wonderful, but there's always this escape element to it. But yeah, and I think I think also, you know, art and, and mimetic art, especially art, art that looks like something else, right? And this, this is something that Lewis kind of touches on here, kind of another shot across 
the bow, so to speak, against uh, modern artists, you know, who think that paint should look like paint. Lewis loves paint that looks like something else, right? Uh, because there's there's something real coming through. And certainly here, there's Narnia coming through, even though this is this painting is an illusion. It's an illusion that's more real than the world around you. They find themselves in another world that in many ways is more real than the world that they were in. picture they are in the water completely to get pulled up by the by the ship eustace does not make the best impression on caspian and his crew caspian's about three years older than he was when they left him at the end of prince caspian we meet drinian the captain of the ship we also meet Reepicheep, who continues to be a swashbuckling adventurer in the in the mold of maybe errol flynn or lancelot or arindel arindel yep yep yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he's got, he's such a brilliant creation of Lewis's because it's, it's primarily like in Prince Caspian, it's funny that a mouse would have so much bravado or bravado, but gradually he's just kind of building layers and layers on Reaper Cheap, right? So he, he, by the end of Prince Caspian, he learns to care, not to care so much about his honor. And he's this incredibly chivalrous, gentlemanly mouse. He also has this deep desire to go to the ends of the earth, right? And the, which is a perfect thing for a knight to, to feel, to want adventure. Yeah, yeah. Not just to destroy evil, but to discover good. So they get aboard the Don Treader and they begin talking with Caspian. Where are you heading for? Asked Edmund. Well, said Caspian, that's rather a long story. Perhaps you remember that when I was a child, my usurping uncle Miraz got rid of seven friends of my father's who might have taken my part by sending them off to explore the unknown eastern seas beyond the Lone Islands. Yes, said Lucy. And none of them ever came back. Right. Well, on my coronation day, with Aslan's approval, I swore an oath that if once I established peace in Narnia, I would sail east myself for a year and a day to find my father's friends or to learn of their deaths and avenge them if I could. These were their names, the Lord Revillian, the Lord Burn, the Lord Argos, the Lord Mavramorn, the Lord Arctesian, the Lord Restamar, and, oh, that other one that's so hard to remember. The Lord Roop, sire, said Drinian. Roop, Roop, of course, said Caspian. That is my main intention. But Reepicheep here has an even higher hope. Everyone's eyes turned to the mouse. As high as my spirit, he said, though perhaps as small as my stature, why should we not come to the very eastern end of the world? And what might we find there? I expect to find Aslan's own country. It is always from the east across the sea that the great lion comes to us. I say, that is an idea, said Edmund in an awed voice. But do you think, said Lucy, Aslan's country would be that sort of country? I mean, the sort you could sail into. I do not know, madam, said Reepicheep, but there is this. When I was in my cradle, a woodwoman, a dryad, spoke this verse over me. Where sky and water meet, where the waves grow sweet, doubt not, Reepicheep, to find all you seek. There is the utter east. I do not know what it means, but the spell of it has been on me all my life. Speaking of assonant poetry, um, that uh, <laughs> has quite a bit of assonance in it. That's all right. 
Uh, but Eustace doesn't comment this time. No, no, he doesn't. I don't know if he, I think he's like down below seasick <laughs> at this point because they haven't used the cordial on him yet or, or something. But uh, I'm sure he'd have a lot to say. Yeah, it's it's a better poem than than Eustace's poem about some kids who played games about Narnia. Uh, again, this this eternal theme of all of Lewis's work, right? Uh, Sansucht, or however you... Mm-hmm correctly say it in German. What are your thoughts on on this part? Well, as you say, this is the defining characteristic of Lewis's life. In, he names his autobiography Surprised by Joy. He's talking about this indescribable something that has been drawing him along all of this time, such that he then even repurposes it in mere Christianity as an argument for the existence of God, that, well, if... if if a baby wants food and there's such a thing as food and a duckling wants to swim and there's such a thing as water, well, if there's this something inside of me that wants something that nothing in this world is providing, well, then that says I was made for another world. You see that idea here expressed in Reaper Cheap throughout the book that he is yearning for something. He doesn't quite know what, but he thinks it's probably got something to do with Aslan and his country that's drawing him on regardless of whatever obstacles are in his way. That's true. I just want to say that every time I read or hear those poetry lines spoken, I immediately think of the BBC movie from the 80s. Yes. Um, but do you think Aslan's country a sort of place that you can, well, just sail into? I know not, madame, but there is this. When I was in my cradle, a woodwoman, a dryad, spoke this verse over me. Where sky and water meet, where the waves grow sweet, doubt not, Reaper to find all you seek. There, in the utter east. And just the way that it's like sung kind of over the soundtrack, whenever I think of that, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. that that's really, really awesome. And little did we know that years later they would produce a new movie and that the BBC version would still be better. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Oh my gosh. Because in the movie, this is really sidelined. This is yeah. nothing at all. Yeah. It's mentioned in passing, but that's it. Yeah. This is the one thing I'll say because I could go on a cold tangent. <laughs> I think we all I, the movie hurt me. It yeah. hurt me so much. Yeah. And we may cut this out. I'm not sure if I was angrier at the Hobbit movie or at the Voyager of the Dawn Treader movie. Voyage, easy. The sure. Yeah. The yeah. Hobbit was bad, but that was clearly padded. You could at least make right. sense of that. Whereas with the yeah. Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's like you guys really were trying something very different from the book and yeah. swing and a miss. I should have known when they decided to make Susan and Caspian fall in love in the second book, the second movie, <laughs> that this was set in a bad direction. They retroactively made the Prince Caspian movie worse because at the time I was like, okay, they're kind of setting up, you know, Caspian is going to meet the star and going to fall in love and they completely butchered it. And so I'm like, <laughs> then that building block makes no sense. It's just annoying. Yeah. I think I've blocked out a lot of that, uh, a lot of the memory of that. David, I remember you talking about this on your podcast. Uh, Netflix is planning on doing mm-hmm. Narnia series, which I'm like kind of ne- dreading, ne- but possibly yeah. it'll be good. Uh, Netflix got the rights a few years ago. They've yeah. done nothing with them. There has been a suggestion, a rumor in the, just the last few days, just before recording, that the lady who directed Lady Bird and the recent Little Women remake that she might be one of the directors for a couple of the movies, but okay. it's it's really nothing more than a rumor at this point. We can I, just I comfort really ourselves want... by the fact that the BBC version is still there, ready for us to yeah. enjoy. 
That's yes, right. that that one is so amazing. Yeah, you don't need good special effects to. Uh, it does you know. help, though. <laughs> yeah, it it does kind of take you out of the movie when certain production choices are made in low budget movies okay like i get that he's put everything to rights in narnia things are good you know they've beaten back the giants uh, a little bit uh, all, all is kind of at rest you still don't unless you're like king richard going on the crusades you know you even st- then it probably wasn't a good idea <laughs> it wasn't a great idea right hence robin hood i've come to warn you that if you do not stop levying these evil taxes i shall lead the good people of england in a revolt against you <laughs> And why should the people listen to you? Because, unlike some other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Robin Hood's not historical, but hence the Magna Carta. It's an interesting uh, sort of talk about Aslan's management style that he's really, really not... (laughs) a um micromanager yes he's not a micromanager he just kind of like sets people up and sees how things go and it seemed to me that caspian is probably also not a micromanager the white witch had to do everything herself um miraz too (laughs) you know but yeah caspian's just going oh yeah things look pretty good here at narnia i'm gonna go and uh sail after my dad's friends and uh, and maybe rescue them have some adventures trumpkin's doing fine um, spring break yeah pretty much yeah this is caspian's holiday right it's interesting and and, and this also like kind of happens when, <laughs> to skip ahead just a little bit lord burn after they've uh, dismantled the slave trade in the Lone Islands. Lord Byrne is like, oh, I think you should probably stay here, Your Majesty, and like make sure everything goes all right. And Gatsby's like, No, Lord Byrne, nah, you got be this. Fine. fine. <laughs> I feel like all kinds of other fanfic could be written, things that go wrong in Caspian's absence. But yeah, it's it's interesting, and it gets to kind of the Star Trek thing that that we'll probably be bringing up, which is you have your most important person doing all the exploring in places where they could easily die, um, or be made a slave and then sold off we we get some great description of the non-treader sailing you know and then and sailing from the place they pick up um edmund lucy and eustace to the lone islands this to me is kind of like paradigmatic of what it means to be at sea right because this is one of the early books that i read that talked about like sea voyages Um, what are some of your favorite moments from this from this voyage uh, between here and when they get to the lone islands again i really like when eustace tries to play a practical joke on reaper chief and then (laughs) he is not having that no one touches the tail yeah and there's there's like constant sort of sparks between Eustace and Reaper Cheap. Again, owing to the fact that they are their their value systems are so different. Reaper Cheap is far more human than Eustace is, despite the fact that he's a mouse, possibly because of the fact that he's a mouse. The chivalrous giving up of um, Caspian's room to Lucy, and, and of course the, the diary of Eustace, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is which is uh, again when the satire is reasserting itself pretty strongly and it's uh, also another part of that biographical element of lewis's own life he was also a journal keeper and one of the things that happened at his conversion was that he decided that this sort of this particular sort of introspection wasn't particularly good for him hmm. and so that was one of the things that he stopped doing whereas eustace clearly revels in it yeah whether it's whether it's his marks or or whether it's his complaints about other people this little notebook is precious to him yeah absolutely i wonder if lewis, i wonder if lewis kept 
kept a record of his marks as a child. I hope not. <laughs> that, like I, I kind of almost feel like this is antithetical to being any kind of a serious student is worrying about your grade to that degree. Readers, we're, we're referring to this uh, little passage, what Eustace thought, oh, sorry, listeners, we're referring to this little passage, what Eustace thought had best be told in his own words for when they all got their clothes back dried next morning, he had once got out a little black notebook and a pencil and started to keep a diary. He always had this notebook with him and kept a record of his marks in it. For though he didn't care much about any subject for its own sake, he cared a great deal about marks and would even go to people and say, I got so much. What did you get? But as he didn't seem very likely to get many marks on the Don Treader, he now started a diary. I just kind of added the note that this is absolutely nothing like my students. They don't care about grades at all. Um, they, <laughs> they, they always care about the subject for its own sake. And whenever they write me an email or come to my office, it's always for a deeper discussion of the you know, of the subject at hand because they're such passionate scholars. I don't know if Lewis had students like this, but I certainly don't. Well, it's not even really about the marks. It, 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 this journal is just a cudgel. It's it's a weapon mm-hmm. that he can use, whether yeah. it's he can, he can bragging about about a particular test where he got a higher mark than some other boy. It's kind of immaterial. It's just basically going to be his means of putting other people down and elevating himself. Yeah. He's trying to turn this story into um, an as told by Eustace story, right? That aligns with his his values um, and, and his, uh, his view of the world and what's important and what's good. TikTok hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, yeah, clearly. itself you know just really sort of reveals everything that lewis is concerned about with with modern education with modern views mainly eustace looks down on things for being old august 7th have now been 24 hours on this ghastly boat if it isn't a dream all the time a frightful storm has been raging which is just like the rocking of the boat it's a good thing i'm not seasick huge waves keep coming in over the front and i have seen the boat nearly go under any number of times All the others pretended to take no notice of this, either from Swank or because Harold says one of the most cowardly things ordinary people do is to shut their eyes to facts, capital F facts. It's madness to come out of the sea in a rotten little thing like this, not much bigger than a lifeboat. And of course, absolutely primitive indoors. No proper saloon, no radio, no bathrooms, no deck chairs. So <laughs> I like that he especially, you know, points out the fact that there are no deck chairs, which is great. But uh, but yeah, he's mainly, you know, looking down at Narnia because they're not progressive and have backward views. Uh, so they treat girls uh, with chivalry and, and things like that. And then also they don't have as much material wealth as Britain in, in Eustace's day. They don't have regulation in the same way. They don't have the same technology. And it's clear that the main thing that Eustace has received from his education is a false sense of superiority over, um, you know, supposedly backwards people. I think this is a really important thing to to notice when we get to the Lone Islands and the slave trade, because um, this slave trade that Lewis kind of takes on is from the point of view of Gumpus and of the slave traders, certainly, this is a progressive thing that's happening in Narnia, right? Harold and Alberta, Eustace's parents uh, would have viewed the slave trade as primitive and backwards, but like 
mainly because it's something that happened in the past and we've moved beyond it now. Like that seems to be their only metric for judging mm -hmm. whether something is good or not, um, rather than some sort of like stable system of ethics. It's got more to do with, is, is this the latest thing? Is this, is this the thing that all the civilized people are doing right now? All the people with means to have this sort of technology, is this what they're doing? Or is it something that was done five years ago or 500 years ago or something like that? And so for the Lone Island Islanders and the Calamines, uh, the, the latest thing is the slave trade. And it's justified in exactly the same terms by Gumpus and, and by others. But yeah, they so they, they get to these lone islands, which have been held time out of mind by the Narnian crown. Lucy wants to visit Felimar, uh, which she hasn't seen since she was a monarch in Narnia. So they decide to take a party across consisting of uh, Eustace, Edmund, Lucy, and uh, Reepicheep and Caspian. Lo and behold, they get abducted by slavers, sold to different people. Caspian luckily gets sold to Lord Byrne, um, his dad's old friend, and convinces Lord Byrne that he is in fact Caspian the 10th, come up with a plan to make Governor Gumpus uh, his sufficiency, um, as, as, as he's called, which is just awesome, to, to make him basically uh, step down. He thinks that more Narnian ships are on their way. That understanding of the human person is very different. And this is one of the points that Lewis wants to emphasize of the value of people that they can't just be used as means to an end. And that in particular is a, is a theme you find throughout Narnia, throughout all of his other writings. That there is always a tendency by some people to see other people as things to use rather than people to love, mm -hmm. as well as those who are in positions of power. Well, the normal rules don't get to apply to them. If they're truly great, they can rise above all of this and they can basically do what they want. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you have Eustace saying that that's the way Caspian is being, right? Um, and, 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 and kind of whining about the unfairness and the tyranny of, you know, of a monarchy <laughs> and, and things like that, right? Because, because Eustace is used to being catered to all the time as a uh, Republican in the old sense of the word, right? He's sort of used to kind of being catered to by his own government as a sort of rep representative parliamentary system, but he himself is a kind of tyrant, right? Um, it's, it's, it's like democracy in this case has created nations full of tyrants, right? Who, who get to have everything uh, their own way, take exception to the fact that there are certain people who are kings, right? Even when those kings, like Caspian's doing, act like servants, even when they serve their, uh, their people. And in this case, of course, Caspian is not just a servant, but he's made temporarily a slave, ends up disrupting business as usual on the island, which he has every right to do as the monarch, demanding from his sufficiency, Governor Gumpus, why uh, Gumpus has permitted this abominable and unnatural traffic in slaves to grow up here, contrary to the ancient custom and usage of our dominions. And uh, Gumpus is saying things like, oh, it's necessary, unavoidable, an essential part of the economic development of the, of the islands. I assure you, our present burst of prosperity depends on it. And then he finds out the slaves mainly are being exported to Calamon and, and elsewhere, continues to kind of say these patronizing things like your majesty's tender years hardly make it possible that you should understand the economic problem involved. I have statistics, I have graphs, I have tender as my years may be, said Caspian. I believe I understand the slave trade from within quite as well as your sufficiency, and I do not see that it brings into the islands meat or bread or beer or wine or timber or cabbages or books or instruments or music or horses or armor or anything else worth having whether it does or not, it must be stopped. But that would be putting the clock back, gasped the governor. Have you no idea of progress, of development? 
I have seen them both in an egg, said Caspian. We call it going bad in Narnia. This trade must stop. You know, this great response to this metaphor of progress as as this sort of like indefinite growing up, right? And then Lewis always, of course, prefers the idea of, uh, well, as time passes, things also go bad. And an idea of progress is you actually want to progress to something better, not just simply keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes back to this idea several times in Mere Christianity when he says that people might say that he's suggesting that we're trying to turn the clock back. In book one, chapter five, he says, would you think I was joking if I said that you can put a clock back and that if the clock is wrong, it is very often a very sensible thing to do. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where we want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, as the Lone Islands did with regards to slavery, uh, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. That's what Lewis understands by real progress, not what Gumpus is offering, and particularly not uh, in bureaucracy, because that was one of the things that Lewis really hated. If you read the Screwtape Letters, how does he imagine hell? Lots of nice offices with a with a very deep hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, a, a total managerial state that's been set up in the Lone Islands, right? Just basically bureaucracy. His interaction here with Gumpus um, is to uh, relieve him of his office. My Lord Byrne, come here. And before Gumpus quite realized what was happening, Byrne was kneeling with his hands between the king hands and taking the oath to govern the Lone Islands in accordance with the old customs, rights, usages, and laws of Narnia. And Caspian said, I think we have had enough of governors and made Bern a duke, the duke of the Lone Islands. So we're done with governors. We're done with bureaucrats. Uh, we're going to have, you know, titled people, which of course, you know, uh, I'm sure Lewis would be the first to admit, well, yeah, that can go wrong too. But yeah, it's a corrective to this sort of verging on modern state of affairs that you have going at, at, at the Lone Islands. I was just thinking, but it's also like the nice in that hideous strength, mm-hmm. because I just finished listening to the Face Trilogy recently. It's amazing. The part where half the book is taken up with people saying a whole bunch of stuff, and then you're like, what did you just say? And like, you never get down to what they're, they talk around the issue, and it's just like, that's such a good metaphor for bureaucracy. I was just thinking of that as another example. As anyone that's worked in office knows, when there's a problem, let's form a committee. Let's let's have that committee have some meetings. We can talk about it. We can send out some minutes. Yeah. yeah. So so many meetings will happen. Because then we can say we're doing something. Exactly. Yeah. It's comfort. We have minutes. We have proof that we've been doing something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny too, because people tend to view like ceremony and pomp and things like that as empty, but this sort of efficiency that we have in the, yeah, yeah. um, The the sort of efficiency that we have in the modern world is often pretty empty as well. And and it fails to bring anyone to a state of humility um, in the way that, you know, pomp and circumstance and things like that could do. Um, Mm. not, Not that it always did. A 
up until this point, Eustace has mainly been an object of fun for Lewis, someone whose worldview he's satirizing, both in picture of Gumpus and, and the sort of modern state, pseudo-modern state that's happening in the Lone Islands, and also in Eustace's own words, right, when he's recording this diary and just getting everything completely backwards and is just insufferable. And then they get to an island after a storm at sea, I should say. They need to repair their mast. They need to repair the ship. So they stop at this island. It's this gloomy island. Eustace wanders off and and sees a dragon. And he doesn't know that it's a dragon because, of course, as Lewis likes to remind us again and again and again, he has read all the wrong books. And he sees the dragon die. He checks to make sure it's dead. He finds its lair. It's full of treasure. He suddenly has all these ideas about the things that he can do with this money. And so we see this sort of like appetite, this modern appetite for the means to create change without a like terribly good vision of what that change should be. And so he just wants to modernize everything in Narnia. Something which Edmund said he was going to do when he was going to the White Witch's house. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he took the character of Edmund, right? And just dialed it up to 11. Like, just <laughs> like, you know, he said, okay, I know I said the thing in, in The Lions of the Wardrobe about he went wrong when he started going to that new school and all that sort of thing, but I'm really going to explore that with <laughs> Eustace, right? Go after modern education and notions of modern education, you know, having having improved means to deteriorated ends, right? Um, that, that That's so characteristic. But yeah, he... Um, He puts a bracelet on his arm, goes to sleep, wakes up, here's what happens. He moved his right arm in order to feel his left, but stopped before he had moved in an inch and bit his lip in terror. For just in front of him, and a little on his right, where the moonlight fell clear on the floor of the cave, he saw a hideous shape moving. He knew that shape. It was a dragon's claw. It had moved as he moved his hand and became still when he stopped moving his hand. Oh, what a fool I've been, thought Eustace. Of course, the brute had a mate and it's lying beside me. For several minutes, he did not dare to move a muscle. He saw two thin columns of smoke going up before his eyes, black against the moonlight, just as there had been smoke coming from the other dragon's nose before it died. This was so alarming that he held his breath the two columns of smoke, vanished. When he could hold his breath no longer, he let it out stealthily. Instantly, two jets of smoke appeared again, but even yet, he had no idea of the truth. Presently, he decided he would edge very cautiously to his left and try to creep out of the cave. Perhaps the creature was asleep. And anyway, it was his only chance. But of course, before he edged to the left, he looked to the left. Oh, horror! There was a dragon's claw on that side, too. No one will blame Eustace if at this moment he shed tears. He was surprised at the size of his own tears as he saw them splashing onto the treasure in front of him. They also seemed strangely hot. Steam went up from them, but there was no good crying. He must try to crawl out from between the two dragons. He began extending his right arm. The dragon's four-legged claw on his right went through exactly the same motion. Then he thought he would try his left. The dragon limb on that side moved too. Two dragons, one on each side, mimicking whatever he did. His nerve broke and he simply made a bolt for it. 
There was such a clatter and rasping and clinking of gold and grinding of stones as he rushed out of the cave that he thought they were both following him. He daren't look back. He rushed to the pool. The twisted shape of the dead dragon lying in the moonlight would have been enough to frighten anyone, but now he hardly noticed it. His idea was to get into the water. But just as he reached the edge of the pool, two things happened. First of all, it came over him like a thunderclap that he had been running on all fours. And why on earth had he been doing that? And secondly, as he bent toward the water, he thought for a second that yet another dragon was staring up at him out of the pool. But in an instant, he realized the truth. The dragon face in the pool was his own reflection. There was no doubt of it. It moved as he moved. It opened and shut its mouth as he opened and shut his. He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. Yeah, it's just so vivid and evocative. I'm not, I'm not sure what else, you know, I can, I can really say about it, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's great. Do you all have any thoughts about why exactly this turns Eustace into a dragon? I don't know if we can necessarily explain how it happens other than magic, but it's an externalization of what's been there all along. We've been told that he's had dragonish thoughts in his heart. We've heard the interior monologue in his diary, and he's now come to this island where a magical uh, dragon's horde has now manifested that and shown him on the outside what he actually has always been on the inside if my co-host andrew was here he would say that this was an inversion of the narcissus myth as eustace runs and sees his reflection doesn't see beauty but he sees ugliness rather like uh oral in till we have faces when she sees her reflection and then weeps i am ungit he's he's finally brought low he's seeing what sort of person he really is. Because throughout the story, Eustace has had a very high opinion of himself, and now he can't really do that anymore. He's, he's going to be forced to have to deal with what kind of person he really is. Yeah, there's this, uh, there's this, there's this great medieval romance, um, I believe it's 15th century, called Sir Gowther. It's about the son of the devil. His mother is seduced by a devil, an incubus. He is born and he, you know, has these like horrible jagged teeth, kills a bunch of nursemaids, um, you know, by, by nursing on them and grows up and, you know, rapes and pillages and does all of these horrible things without any sort of sense of repentance. And then one day someone tells him that his father is not actually his father, that his, that he's actually like basically devil spawn. And that prompts him to go on a pilgrimage to seek forgiveness from the Pope for all the things he's done, which he receives after um, his penance is to sit under a table uh, and gnaw on bones with the dogs, this this sudden knowledge of, oh my gosh, this is what I really am, is so powerful to him that it actually affects repentance. Um, and I think you see a, a similar sort of thing with uh, with Eustace here, um, where we're becoming a beast, becoming that thing that he's really been inside and, and being seen as a beast, right? He's so he's so embarrassed of the way that he looks and of the way that he um, now appears because it's a manifestation of, of, of who he is deep inside, who he's always been. But And um, described as such, regularly in the yeah. text, it was about him being beastly to the others. It's, yeah. it's yeah. an old, old, older form that we don't typically use these days, but it describes perfectly how he was being. 
Yeah. And it's, it's ironic, of course, as well, that he's uh, again and again describing the Pevensies and Caspian as fiends in human shape. And he's been a fiend in human shape this whole time. And now he can finally be a human in a fiend's shape. That's great. I never thought of it that way before, but that, that is everything you guys are saying is great. Whenever he says fiends in human shape, I always think of P.G. Woodhouse. It's it's just really hard not because that's the sort of that's the sort of thing that uh, that like Birdie and his friends in the Jeeves books uh, would would say is calling people fiends in human shape. But Lewis, you know, takes that expression and of course just like kind of turns it over and uh, and, and has fun with it. about out of time so we will get to you know what happens to Eustace how he becomes undragoned in our next episode he starts to actually find that he desires to be human and he desires to be around people you know now that his shape and size basically exclude him from that possibility I want to end with a ridiculous idea this book as we've kind of said and hinted at and alluded to this book anticipates Star Trek's own tendency to send its highest ranking personnel on exploratory missions uh, which could be deadly and this is a tendency I don't want to give Star Trek too much flack for this because this is something that like old adventure stories have always done it's odysseus who goes on the you know on the on the most dangerous missions and in, in the odyssey which is one of the oldest pieces of literature we have right nobody wants to read about like one of odysseus's men going exploring the underworld for example or whatever they want to read about odysseus doing it but He's yeah like the ship updating a spreadsheet yeah exactly or a graph and chart I wonder if we could propose a Star Trek-like show featuring Caspian in space, but better than Treasure Planet. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe as Lewis envisioned space. At what point in space do we come to Aslan's country, by the way? Is, is, is it that sort of a country? I don't think you can just warp into it. Yeah, one does not. One does not just walk into Aslan's country. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, or take a uh, spaceship. And we've talked about this, you know, throughout this this episode, uh, the, the sort of similarity to Star Trek, right? This sort of episodic thing. But in some ways, Star Trek is so concerned with progress, right? Um, it's it's so much Harold and Alberta's kind of way of thinking, except updated for the 60s or for the 90s, if it's the next generation. And then I stopped watching after that. Um, but uh, <laughs> Earth is a utopia in Star Trek because... They've got beyond their silly feuding and their silly differences about things. And, and there's this one world economy and things are working really great. So let's go out and observe other cultures, export our model that's so great for us on, on Earth. And it occurs to me that like, well, Narnia apparently is in a pretty great place for like pretty different reasons, right? Um, they They haven't... <laughs> evolved they haven't progressed uh it's it's in a good place because they've hewed to morality that works aligned with the good that is aligned with absolute good but yeah it'd be fun to think about how you know how you could create a sort of like narnian sci-fi where narnia is like a kind of federation of different planets with talking beasts and dryads and things like that and they all kind of hang out together I was just wondering if you all had any any ideas of, of that or of something different. Well, the talking beasts could be the uh, animals in the constellations. So, you know, you could go to a cluster of stars where everybody's a bear. Yeah, yeah.
uh, and they're all very sleepy. And, uh, and they shook their push. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that this plot of being taken as a slave, I'm sure that's happened in Star Trek, right? Um, I, I mean, I the, the thing that jumps to my mind is the episode called Spock's Brain, where mm-hmm. it's the, the women come on board and they press a button on their wrist things and everybody passes out. And then when they wake up, Spock's brain has been taken out of his head and put into the ship and it's running everything. You've got him on complete life support. Was he dead? He was worse than dead. What do you mean? Jim. Come on, Bones, what's the mystery? His brain is gone. Is that is that the original series? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was such a trippy series. Like some of the ideas <laughs> that they came up with. It was just so much more fun than uh than the next generation. Uh, I went back and re-watched the next generation about a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. And those early seasons, man, they are way rougher than I remember. Yeah, you uh, know why? So this is why? crazy. Gene Roddenberry, I think that that was the guy that came mm-hmm. up with it. He yeah, insisted yeah. on complete creative control of the next generation and his ideas of progress precluded any kind of conflict between the characters because the idea is humanity's evolved beyond that right <laughs> so so How like do you make that into a tv show exactly it's like trying to make a show about heaven right um uh, which which i think would be a little more interesting than progressive utopia but but still like really tough to do if there's no conflict between between characters so yeah like all the conflict has to come from the worlds that they visit and and they have to like kind of shake their heads and be like mm, i'm so glad we've moved beyond that um, which which really undermines the very genre as to why these odyssey like stories mm-hmm. are usually so entertaining because it doesn't necessarily have to be about one big overarching antagonist it is about the journey and the development of our characters you know that the antagonist is the journey are yeah. they going to make it home okay and are they going to come back better men and women than they left and so if you try and take out any form of development what's left yeah 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 i remember listening to a podcast about this uh, and i forget which one it was but yeah they're they're like yeah we really fought as the creative team as like the script writers we fought gene roddenberry like crazy to you know try to get him to give a little bit on this vision of like well nobody has nobody has interpersonal problems because you know the world's perfect now and we we we've we've all evolved and uh apparently the first few seasons they didn't get him the budge and then either i don't know if he died or i think he started getting else. sick at that point yeah now. yeah and then they managed to make it a little more interesting hello men could be the klingons <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I was thinking that too, right? Like, there could be like this great, you know, Calarmenian Empire, right? Like there is in Narnia, right? And the um, and the type of space that there is would be more like Deep Heaven, right? Uh, the space trilogy, except it would probably need to be a little less serene again because a show does need conflict. So maybe we disrupt the idea that only one planet has imperfect stuff and and sort of spread it around <laughs> a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think it could be fun. was one one thing i did yeah. want to read it's 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 my one of my favorite sections from the portion of the book that we've read and it's when they rescue all of the slaves and they discover that all of the children have been sold except eustace uh-huh. and they uh-huh. ask where he is and pug responds 
Oh, him. Oh, take him and welcome. Glad to have him off my hands. Never seen such a drug on the market in all my born days. Priced him at five crescents in the end and nobody'd have him. Threw him in free with other lots and still no one would have him. Wouldn't touch him. Wouldn't look at him. Tax, bring out Sulky. <laughs> uh, that's pretty great. He's probably not thrilled to uh, be sold as a slave in the first place, but he's probably even less thrilled to uh, have no not one even be wanted. No one <laughs> wanting to buy him. Just goes to show you that if you practice the liberal arts and go in for traditional ideas of what makes humanity humanity, you are more marketable, even as a, <laughs> even as a slave. Than, uh, than you would be if you simply follow hollow fads about progress. Uh, so I think there's a moral there for all of us. Thank you so much for joining us again. David, thank you so much for joining us for the first time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Definitely, if you haven't already, please do check out Pints with Jack, particularly if like Eric, you're sort of like, when in the world is uh, the Inklings Variety Hour going to post another episode? Like Pints with Jack is amazing and prolific. Thank you for doing what you do. You're very welcome. And you're always welcome to praise our podcast whenever you feel moved. To. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging with us. And we will see you next time as we see Eustace Undragoned World to the East opened up. Till then, have a great week, but I'll see you next time. full of joy and scheduled on a decent plan with here an addict of Tolkien there a Charles Williams fan I'm still searching for that magical catchphrase uh, that will signal that the podcast is over but uh, I'll see you next time